It is uh, good to be together again. I haven't been with you for a little bit because of a little sickness that I had, but it is a pleasure uh, to be back together. Happy New Year uh, to each of you. Hopefully this is, this is the year. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but uh, whatever that means to you, hope it is that to you. Uh, today we're going to resume our study in the book of Acts. Um, so go ahead and start turning there. You can see on the screen we're in chapter 16. We do have... Uh, I guess what we'll call chair Bibles, pew Bibles available if you don't have one. And you can see the page number is listed there for you as well. Um, but we're going to continue our look at the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. That missionary journey that began in chapter 16, really right at the end of chapter 15, uh, and is going to run all the way pretty much through chapter 18. So there's quite a bit of material in our Bibles on the second missionary journey and we're going to pick up uh, where we left off uh, last year. It's a little dad humor. Um, you, know, you can use that if you need to. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this facility. Thank you for this body of believers, Lord, that you've raised up. Thank you for the work of your son, Lord, that certainly makes uh, the formation of a body of believers possible and the need for a facility possible. Lord, we're just grateful uh, once again uh, to be your children. And so we pray for your working in our hearts and lives this year through us as well in the lives of other people. We pray your blessing on every time we come together. Lord, whether it's uh, in this kind of a setting on a Sunday morning, a Wednesday night, or it's a small group gathering, or it's just a couple of believers getting together Lord, to encourage and challenge one another. Lord, we ask for your blessing on those, those encounters. And so minister to us through your word, as you have designed, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, since it's been a little while, let me just remind you, look back at verse 15, chapter 15, verse 36, because you'll remember that following the, the first missionary journey, Paul, uh, Barnabas, they went back to uh, Syrian Antioch, and they did what they did there, and we looked at that material about how they began to teach the period, people for a period of time. And then in 1536, we read this. Now, after some time, some days, Paul and Barnabas, uh, Paul said to Barnabas, let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. And in a little note on the side, you could put first missionary journey. That's what he's referring to. He's referring to those that came to know the Lord during the first missionary journey. Paul had a heart for them. How are they doing? Are they still walking with the Lord? Are they so excited about the Lord? Has persecution sort of scattered them? Has it uh, challenged them in such a way that they decided to throw in the towel? Let's go see how they are doing. Let's encourage them that they might grow in the faith. And so that's the beginning of the second missionary journey. That's where Paul's heart was pricked that we need to get out on the road again. And we looked at this a little bit, how he uh, had a new traveling partner, a fellow by the name of Silas, and how he and Silas first, they went northward, in, inland they were, they went northward from where they were in what we call Syria today, and they went to that region that was called Cilicia. We call that Asia Minor. And then from that location, they went westward, and they went back to those cities that you may remember their names. They went back to Derby. They went back to Iconium. They went back to Lystra, those places where people had come to know the Lord. And they wanted to see how they were doing and encourage them. I'll just put a map up here, and I know you can't always read the, the writing of it. I'm not going to put a map up. That would be silly. 
We don't have a map today. But anyway, it's there. It's in this area right over here. Uh, so you see it? Oh. Uh, and so uh, Derby, Lystra, Iconium. Now, Derby, you may recall, that's where they uh, met that fellow by the name of Timothy. Almost certainly a new convert, either by the, the ministry efforts of Paul and Barnabas, or when Paul and Barnabas left, some of the people that had been impacted by Paul and Barnabas, but a relatively new believer. We're probably looking about three to five years after Paul was in that particular town in that city, and it's there in Derby that they pick up Timothy, and they bring him along. So now the team is Silas, Paul, and this younger man, Timothy, who's going to go on to become uh, a lifelong mentee of the Apostle Paul and a, and a dear brother as well to the Apostle Paul. It's also in Derby that the trip and its purpose transitions. And so it goes from, let's go back and visit old friends, now to become, let's go make some new friends, if you will. It goes from encouraging those in the faith from five years ago to let's go plant more churches. Let's go spread the gospel to more people. And you remember we, uh, we spent some time considering, again, last year, before Christmas, I guess the 16th or so of December, uh, that, that you know, they began to head off to the south, but the Holy Spirit said, no, no, I don't want you to go down there. And they began to head north. No, not there either. And then a little bit west, but not there. And then kind of northwest. Yeah, this is where I want you to go. And so if you look at a verse like chapter 16, 6, it says, we went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, but we were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word uh, there in Asia. And then they went northward to Bithynia, and verse 7 says, And when we had come to Mysia, they attempted to go in Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there. And then finally, as we see in verses 9 and 10, it's when they're at the port city of Troas, that port city right on the Aegean Sea. Tur today, Turkey on one side, Greece on the other. They're in that port city of Troas that Paul receives a vision. And it's of a man that is from Macedonia saying, Come over here, we need you. I'll read it to you. Verse 9, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man in Macedonia was standing there, and he was urging them, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel. Notice that. Come over here and help us. How'd they go over and help them? They preached the gospel. I'm sure they helped pick up leaves and, and things like that as well, which is significant and important but the most significant thing that they needed help with was their eternal state. And that can only be helped with the preaching of the gospel. Last note before we move on to some new material. Notice in verse 10 where it says, Now when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. And I pointed out the last time we were together, Luke now, the author of the book, has joined the team. Prior to this, when he had been writing, he would say, and they, and they, and they, and now he says, and we. And so the team now is Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. And they're going to make their way over across the sea, the Aegean Sea. They're going to go from what we call Turkey to what is today called Greece. They're going to hit that region that then was called Macedonia. And so we pick up the second missionary journey, and it says this in verse 11. And so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. 
And we remained in that city or in this city for some days. Verse 11 tells us that they went to Samothrace. Samothrace is a small island, not too far off the coast of, uh, again, what we call Greece. And so they kind of, they sailed there, they stopped, they regrouped. I imagine anybody they found, they told about, uh, they told the Lord about. The next day they go to the mainland and they stop in this little town. You can see it there in verse 11, Neapolis. And so we can imagine that's a port city on the mainland. And then from Neapolis, they begin to head inward or inland. And they make their way to uh, Philippi, which we are told is a leading city uh, of the region of Macedonia. And we're not told all these things, but presumably Paul and Luke and Timothy and the others, they told anybody that would listen, why are you here? What is it you've come here to do? And they told them all about the Lord. But their goal, it seems, is to go to Samothrace, you know, to regroup, to go to Neapolis, to land and kind of have a nice meal or something. But they want to get to the city of Philippi. And we're told a few things. Do we have a map of this or we don't have that map either? No maps. Picture it in your mind. But from Cilicia to Philippi is about 400 miles, maybe even a little bit more than that. Conservatively, it's about 400 miles. These guys are traveling a long distance. They are now probably about 700 miles from where they set out uh, in Antioch. And they're going to uh, make their way to Philippi. Notice it says in um, in verse 12, and we remained in this city for some days. Neapolis was fine. Samothrace was fine. But what we see here is sort of Paul's modus operandi uh, that we notice in other places in the book of Acts as well. Paul typically would seek to go to the largest city that he could, the place where he thought, you know, the message that I bring to this place can spread from here much easier than it can spread to this particular location. He wasn't afraid of the size of it or anything like that. And so he goes to Philippi and he uh, begins to preach in that particular city. And as we're going to see today and the next time that we come together, he's going to come into contact with three individuals, three, and I think this is so interesting, vastly different individuals, and he's going to preach the same message to each one of those individuals. You can skim with me for a moment. Look at verse 13. The first individual that he's going to come in contact with, her name is Lydia. It's listed for us here in our Bibles. She is a highly successful, morally upstanding business person of the community. And Paul's going to teach her about Jesus. If you look at verse 16, we encounter a young slave girl. Some versions use the word a damsel, a little girl, a young girl. And she is a slave girl, and we're never told uh, what her name actually is. And then the third person is down in verse 25, and that is the community jailer. A person who would have no doubt had a reputation for being hardworking, harsh, rough around the edges kind of guy. You can look around the room and see who you think fits that bill. So a highly successful business person, a lowest of the low in society, little girl, little slave girl, and then sort of this blue collar, middle of the road kind of fellow there. And Paul preaches the same message as we'll see to each one of those individuals And he's successful in his endeavors. Each one of them responds to that message. I think that's so significant. I think it's so important. 
vastly different individuals from widely differing backgrounds, and each one of them become followers of Jesus Christ. And the reason is this. The reason is because the message of the gospel is for all people from any walk of life, and it has the power to transform folks from any walk of life. And that should encourage you, as you think about yourself, first off, can this transform me like I've seen it transform some other people? But it should also encourage each one of us as we seek to bring the message to those people that we encounter on a daily basis. We have the words of eternal life, and they have the power to change a life. And so with that, let's go back and look at these three people. We're, gonna, we're only going to look at two today. We'll start with the successful businesswoman, a woman by the name of Lydia. So starting in verse 13, we read this. Now on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, Come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now, this seems a bit of a departure from Paul's normal, normal style. Remember, Paul would go into a town. He would find the local synagogue. He would kind of sit, wait his turn. And then when given the opportunity, he would present Jesus to that synagogue there. And yet here, what we see is he doesn't go to the local synagogue, but he, he goes to the side of some river somewhere and he finds some folks you see that there in verse 13 on the sabbath day we went outside to the gate uh, outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there would be a place of prayer again that seems like a departure from the norm it is not however a departure from the norm because the city of uh, the city of philippi did not have a synagogue that Paul and the others could go to, a place Paul could go, sit, wait his turn, and be given the opportunity from the scriptures to point people to Christ. And the reason why we know that they didn't have a synagogue is because of the cultural practice of the Jews and the expectation of the Jews. If there were a minimum of 10 Jewish men in a community, they were required to have a synagogue in that community. Now, don't think of a synagogue like a building, much like we don't think of a church as a building. We think of a church as the people that make up the facility that, they, that a lot of people just call a church. That's the same thing with the synagogue. And so you don't have to have some fancy building somewhere. If you have 10 guys, they can meet in a room. That becomes a synagogue congregation. In the city of Philippi, they couldn't find 10 Jewish men. And so then, since they couldn't find 10 Jewish men, the cultural practice was, all right, well, you still need to gather for prayer, and they would gather for prayer by a place with running water. And the purpose of the running water would be for some of the ritual cleansing ceremonies they have, and that would become known as the place of prayer, not the synagogue, but the place of prayer. And so Paul, I guess he asked around or he looked around, he didn't see a lot of Jewish men, and so he figures they're going to be down by a, a body of water. And there's a river in that particular community there. And so that's where Paul goes. And so essentially, he was going to the synagogue, right? Just not called that. Instead, he was going to what they called the place 
of prayer, and he was prepared then to encounter whoever he encountered. He would sit, why are you here? You know, you kind of, you look like you're wearing the garb of a rabbi. Are you a rabbi? Well, let me tell you my story. I'm so glad you asked. And he would begin to explain to them the Lord. And so as you see at the end of verse 13, we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together there. And so the group that were gathered there, uh, in this case, was a group of ladies, Jewish ladies or um, what we've learned elsewhere were called God-fearers, maybe of Gentile background, but followers or at least interested in Jehovah. One of those women, verse 14 tells us, was a woman named Lydia. And we discover four things about Lydia in just this one verse, verse 14. The first thing that we learn is where she's from. She's living now, working now in Philippi, but she's from Thyatira. And Thyatira was a Gentile town. It was on the eastern side, the Turkey side, what we call today the Turkey side, uh, of the Aegean Sea, and she was from that particular locale. So what we learn, okay, where she's from, that's cool, but more importantly that she was a Gentile. The second thing we learn is that she was a seller of purple goods. You can see that there in verse 14. She's from the city of Thyatira. She was a seller of purple goods. And because the dyes used for making purple were so expensive and so sought after in that day, if you had a purple outfit on, people were like, wow, you're a person of money. And so by being a seller of purple goods, that expensive um, those expensive goods, it meant that she herself was a wealthy individual, a successful businesswoman. Number three, it tells us there that she was a worshiper of God. Now, as a Gentile, you'd expect that to read, she was a worshiper of the gods. But by the fact that it says that she was a worshiper of God, which means she was a worshiper of Jehovah. You remember earlier on in the book of Acts when we were introduced to Cornelius the centurion, it says of him that he was a God-fearer, that was a Jehovah-fearer. Well, this, this basically says the same thing, that she is a follower of Jehovah, a convert to the Jewish faith. And then fourthly, also found in verse 14, we see that while she sat and listened to Paul, that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what it was that Paul was saying. Now, oftentimes, I think in the modern day, oftentimes I think the idea is communicated that the gospel is for the truly down and out of society. You know, you go walk the streets, you find the people that are really down and out, they need to hear the gospel. But the person living in the nice suburban home or the person that's got a nice job and the bank account is full, not so much. This story says otherwise. This story indicates to us that this lady, who had everything together in the earthly, needed the Lord as well. The down and outer might need a, to make that decision so they can have a better life. This lady had a better life. She didn't need another one. And again, from an earthly perspective, she had everything that she could have wanted. A successful businesswoman who certainly led as comfortable a life as anyone in that day and age. And yet, despite all of that, we read that she was a worshiper of God. Despite having everything this world could offer, this woman realized there was something missing from the shallow relationship she had with the gods that the Gentiles taught about that this world could not offer. 
She was looking for something more. And what the Lord was doing was drawing her. And so she'd buy this fancy new thing for her home and be so excited about it for two weeks, a month. And then she'd be like, I got to get out to the next place and get the next thing. And then the fancy car. She had one of those. And it was the coolest thing in the world. And it's so great. And I just love it. And then eventually it just faded away and looking to the next thing and looking to the next thing. And the emptiness was the Lord drawing her to himself. Have you been there? I've been there. I remember I was 16 years old. I had it all. I was the greatest. But God was drawing me to himself. And he was showing me that all those things that a 16-year-old could have weren't filling the need. They weren't meeting what it was I was longing for. And then I met the Lord. And the same thing is, can be said of this particular lady. And so first, by entrance into the Jewish faith, God's drawing her, first by entrance into the Jewish faith, and then through the preaching of the Apostle Paul. Notice what it says there is that the Lord opened her heart through Paul's teaching. She went deeper in her understanding of what life was all about and what it meant to be in relationship with God. Now notice something uh, before we move on. We read that Lydia believed. As far as we know, none of the other women that were with Lydia believed. At least not at that time. We're not told that that is the case. And so I, what I find here significant is the same message was put forth to the same group of people, and some responded to that message, while others did not. And I suspect some of you have experienced that as well. I remember when I was coming to the Lord again, I was 16, just about to turn 17. And I remember uh, that my friends and I, one friend in particular, we would go to the same Bible studies, we would go to the same little youth group activities and things like that. And God opened my heart to believe. And as of yet, he still hasn't opened my friend's heart to believe. Some of us have likely experienced this as we presented the gospel to others. And you do the same pitch with this guy and with that guy. And this gal over here, she responds. And this one over here looks at you like you're crazy. Some respond, others don't. And so we're reminded, your job, our job, is to be faithful. To just faithfully present the truth and let God do the changing work in the hearts of people. So that's the first point here. A second point that I want to draw your attention to is the importance of that phrase, the Lord opened her heart to believe. Lydia responded not because of the clever means by which Paul presented the message, nor because she was intellectually superior or more spiritual or something than the other ladies that were there sitting with her. She responded because the Lord opened her heart to believe, as it says in verse 14. That's the reason why she came to the place of belief. And so that should serve as an important reminder to us that the most important element in evangelism, in sharing our faith with other people, is asking God through prayer to open the hearts of our listeners. And so whether we're sharing you know, with 100 people or something, standing up in front of a room or on some street corner somewhere, or we're just simply having a cup of coffee with another individual and we're communicating the message of the gospel, the most important element is asking God through prayer to open their hearts. Lord, give me the words to speak that'll sort of just follow that path that you formed 
to bring that person to the place of belief. Jesus said in John chapter 6 this, he said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And again, unless God opens the heart of the one we're conversing with, the person will never come truly to the place of belief. They might say, yeah, you make a good point. That's a good point you make, yeah. That's not true belief necessarily. And so as you share with others, pray. Before, you know, you're, as you're driving off to that coffee visit, be praying that God would prepare their heart and open their hearts. Continuing, look at verse 15. Now, after she was baptized, what does that tell us? She believed. Paul wasn't in the practice of just going and baptizing people so he could, like, you know, put it on some chart somewhere. And so she demonstrated belief as an outward sign of that work in her life. Paul baptized her. But notice, he also baptized her household as well. What's that tell us about them? They believed also. And then she urged us, saying, come stay at my house. We'll talk about that in a moment. But Paul baptized her. Paul baptized her household as well in both instances. The household there almost certainly refers not to like her, her husband and her kids or something, but to, pe- to the people that worked for her. Uh, and worked with her and had come to Philippi as part of the business. And each one of them came to the place of belief. And Paul marked that belief with the outward showing there of baptism. Now, for her, that led to her saying, you you need to come. Where are you staying? Well, Well, we'll figure it out. No, you're not. You're coming home with me. All right, I got something on the stove. It's cooking right now or whatever. You're going to stay here. It says there, she urged us. That word urged is a word which means pressed us. Not just like, you should stay with me. No, okay, good luck to you. You know, like she didn't really want them there. She just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. You see there at the end of the verse, it says she prevailed upon us. She was victorious over us, like we were wrestling or something, and she pinned me. She prevailed upon us. And so Lydia, brand new believer, but notice immediately setting out to do good works here, specifically in this instance, showing hospitality toward others. Important that you catch this, not saved because she did good works, but because she was saved, she began to do good works. So again, we're not uh, saved by good works, but we are saved for good works, And that's immediately birthed in the heart of this woman, Lydia. She is determined she's going to show kindness in this way to the team, uh, hospitality to them. And in doing so, she's fulfilling what Paul would later write to the Roman church and ultimately to each one of us found in the book of Romans. He would say this, when God's people are in need, this is Romans 12, 13, when God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to show hospitality or to practice hospitality. And the fact, again, that she had to urge them, the fact that she had to prevail upon them, that speaks to her eagerness to show hospitality. And so this woman, she is off to a great start in her Christian walk. Now, the next person Paul's going to encounter is, in Philippi is this slave girl that I mentioned previously. And her story begins in verse 16. Let's read her story, or a portion of it, going down to verse 18. It says this, Now, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination 
and she brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. And Paul, I love this guy, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very moment. Now, we saw in verse 12, look back at verse 12, the end there. We've remained in this city for some days. We're not told how long, but a week later, two weeks later, a couple of months later, who knows, uh, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, they go back to that place of prayer. They go back to that riverside. Now, that's not the only thing that happened. People are passing by on the road and things like that. But they go back to that particular place, and there they encounter, as we saw, as I just read, a demonically possessed slave girl. A demonically possessed slave girl that followed after Paul is walking a few steps behind Silas and Timothy and Luke and, and all the others there. I imagine Lydia and her household. And she cries out as we see. Now that word cries out, you know this, you're probably smart enough. It means screams. At the top of her lungs, she's yelling out. That in and of itself is annoying. Let's bring it down. Let's be quiet here. But she's screaming, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. The concept there is not that she did this one time. And everyone's like, what did she say? But that she did it again and again and again. Either again and again that day or day after day after day. Everywhere Paul went, everywhere Timothy and Silas and Luke went, here's this girl yelling these things out at the top of her lungs. The word, if you look there in verse 18, it says this, and this she kept doing for many days. That speaks of this idea of over and over and over again. And Paul's going to respond. Now, before looking at Paul's response, let's look a little bit at the slave girl. The first thing that we are told about her is in verse 16, we're told that she had a spirit of, divina of divination. Another way of saying that is she had a demonic spirit, a spirit of a demon that possessed her, that controlled her. And so this young girl was possessed by a demon that gave her the ability to know things that the typical person would not know. And that's how she went about doing the fortune telling that you see mentioned there at the end of verse 16. Some of your versions will say soothsaying. That's hard for me to say. But sooth, she was a soothsayer. I feel like Marsha Brady, was it? Seashell, seashell by the seashore, you know, to practice your S's. It also gave her to the, the ability, so I said it gave her the ability to know things that others wouldn't know. It also gave her the ability to know who Paul was, who the others were, and that the message that they were preaching was true. And she says that there, these men are servants of the Most High God, and they proclaim to you the way of salvation. So facing an uncertain future, as every one of us do, does anyone have any idea what this year holds? Think back to November of 2019, and all that, you know, came about uh, in our world in which we live. And so future is uncertain. And so facing an uncertain future this, for, that everybody did, this young girl's ability to be able to speak of events that were going to occur in the future 
it was highly sought after in her society, even as in many ways it's highly sought after in ours as well. And you, we also can tell that because look what it says, it brought her owners much gain through her fortune telling. People coming here, 10 bucks, you know, tell me how this is going to turn out. Tell me how that is going to turn out. And the same trappings of that day continue into our day, I think. I think you would agree. People are desperate for answers to soothe their fear of the uncertainty that lies ahead for each one of us. Will my marriage, you know, will it work out? Will it be restored? If I take this particular job, is this the right job for me to take? Is this the right person, the right school, the right major, the right college? There's uncertainty. And what many people will do is they will go for a place, they will go to a place where they can get some kind of an answer. They'll go to a psychic. They'll go to a fortune teller. Somewhere where they can go to get an answer to the uncertainty so they can take a deep breath and say to themselves, well, it's going to be okay because the person said it's going to be okay. Today, Americans spend $2.2 billion a year on psychics, astrologers, fortune tellers, and folks like that. $2.2 billion a year. And some of that, of course, is paid sort of for that fun boardwalk activity. And so you go up the boardwalk, you're a bunch of high school kids, you got nothing to do, and there's a fortune teller. Let's go in and see Svetlana and see if she can, you know, tell me what my future is going to hold for me. Some of it's for, it goes toward that. Sadly, however, much of it goes toward those Americans that are desperate for the peace that comes from confidently being able to move forward in a world where we can have no confidence. Can you place any confidence in this world in which we live? You very well may catch something and die like that, a couple of weeks in the world in which we live. Or there'll be some crime spree that takes you out, or this nation crumbles and falls. There's no certainty. I hope you're not encouraged by our message today. <laughs> There's no certainty in the world in which we live. And every one of us faces that uncertainty as to what is ahead of us. Now, for the believer, we can move forward. I say can because we don't always do it. But we can move forward by faith, trusting that the Lord will never leave us nor forsake us. And that regardless of what circumstances may come our way, he will be with us in the midst of those circumstances. But for the unbeliever, the temptation is to, is to turn to a place like one's daily horoscope, or to a psychic, or to a fortune teller, or to anyone that can give me answers that at least temporarily will set my heart at ease. Again, $2.2 billion a year is spent on these individuals. Let me make a couple of points. The first is this. If you name yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, you should, have, you should be having nothing to do with astrology or with a psychic or with a fortune teller. teller. Even if it's a fun thing. Oh, it's just so fun. I love, just love reading my, astro my horoscope each day just to see if it kind of you know, works out. Have nothing to do with such things. They're not harmless, and they are not meant to be, and they are not, quote, fun. Folks like that, uh, the fortune teller, what have you, is either a charlatan that is ripping you off, 
by making obvious guesses about your life, something like this, I sense that this year you're going to be another year older. <laughs> How did she know? You know, she got it or something like that. You know, so they're ripping you off. That'll be $10, please. That's a charlatan. Or those individuals are accurate predictors of the future, empowered by the same sort of spirit that this young girl was empowered by. And if you're a Christian, that's not something that you or I or anyone should be fooling around with. The Greek word translated fortune-telling, soothsayer in some versions, it's the same word that we get the English word manic. And when a person is in like a manic condition or state, that's, that indicates an unnatural, oftentimes crazed state that a person would enter into, in this case, under the spirit's influence. And so this young girl, apparently when the demons wanted to speak through her, she would enter into this manic state of sorts, a trance of some sorts perhaps. She would begin to behave in an erratic, an erratic fashion, and then the demon would speak through her to those she came in contact with. And as I said earlier, one of the insights that the demon gave to her, or demons gave to this girl, was to affirm who Paul was and what Paul was preaching. Look at 17, it says, These are servants of the Most High God, and they proclaim to you the way of salvation. She heard Paul preaching the gospel, and undoubtedly, led by the demon, she attempts to link herself up to Paul. I'm with them. She wants to become Paul's hype man. Cheering them on. Everybody needs to listen. Get the attention of the crowd, because these guys are good. And again, we see Satan's method. Sometimes Satan will come right against the work of the Lord. Other times, Satan will try and infiltrate the work of the Lord. And that's what we're seeing here, his effort to try and infiltrate the work of the Lord, but with this young girl. Now notice what she said, totally true. Paul is a man of God. And so was Luke and Silas and Timothy, and they were preaching the way of salvation. All of that is true, and yet notice what Paul does. He stops her Nonetheless, you've heard the expression uh, about like, I don't even know, it, good press or something like that. You can't beat good press. And so this like, girl's running around town telling everyone that Paul and Silas, they're the real deal. And they have the message. Paul, you would expect, just let them go. Let them tell people. Maybe more people will come out and see us. And yet Paul does the exact opposite. He stops her. And so what she said was true, but Paul knew better to accept the testimony of demons, even as Jesus rejected the testimony of demons. You remember in Luke chapter 4, and it happened on a few occasions, but one of those is Luke chapter 4. It says this, and the demons came out of many, and as they did, this is while Jesus was ministering, they cried, you are the son of God. Jesus should have let them go. They could help spread the message, but rather he rebuked them, and he would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Paul didn't want demons as his hype men or man. And as Luke tells the story, it seems that there was a period of time where Paul sort of ignored or attempted to ignore the interruption of this girl. But then it says there, and I think it's funny, in verse 18 it says, Paul, having become greatly annoyed... 
he turns, shut up, he turns to the spirit and he says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it says, at that very hour, the spirit left her. Now, that phrase, at that very hour, we might think, and 40 minutes later, the spirit came out. The phrase means immediately. In that instant, at that moment, the spirit left her. Paul commanded the demon to come out, and immediately the demon came out. She was freed from her bondage. She was no longer a slave to the demons. She was still a slave to her slave owners, but she was no longer a slave to the demons. Let me make one final point about this. Notice Paul, he doesn't command the spirit to come out by his name or by his authority, but in Jesus' name and by Jesus' authority. When we looked at the Gospel of Mark, we saw this on a few occasions, and it's found in each of the Gospels. We saw many times where Jesus cast out demons from folks, and he did so by his own authority, just like the example I shared there from Luke chapter 4 a moment. But Paul is not Jesus. And so Jesus cast out demons by his own authority. Paul cast out demons by Jesus' authority. Paul here, very careful to confront the demons only in the authority of Jesus Christ because what he knew was that he was no match for these spiritual forces of wickedness in the high places. But what's interesting for us to see is neither were these demons any match for Jesus Christ. And so at Paul's command, and because of the authority of Christ, the spirits had to depart from this young girl. And now we're not told this, but almost certainly Paul sat down with her and he began to teach her about the Lord. And she too went on to believe, even as Lydia and her household believed. And so we have now the beginning of our study here of of their time in Philippi. We have a successful businesswoman and we have a lowly slave girl. And what we have in both of them are two lives changed by the work of Christ within them. And this morning, as we begin the beginning of our new year, we're going to celebrate life-changing, the life-changing work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we're going to do so by celebrating communion. So let me close out this portion in prayer, and then we're going to take communion together. Father, we thank you for men like Paul and Silas, younger men like Timothy, this fellow Luke, Lord, in the burden that you put on their hearts to take the gospel to places that had never been brought before, Lord, the confidence that you instilled within them that the message of the gospel is not a message for just a select few people in a select environment, but it's for all people of all places, from the upper echelon to the very lowest of society. It has the power to transform. And Father, we want to celebrate that as well as we come together now to celebrate communion. Lord, as I have looked around this room and I see the many different people from many different walks of life and having developed relationships over the years with them, aware of the work that you have done within their hearts, Lord, it truly is remarkable to consider the billions and billions of people whose lives you have touched and changed. 
So, Father, as we celebrate communion, would you enlarge our heart afresh at the wonder of our salvation? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.